Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, author Jim Crace on his 12th novel, The Melody. Jim Crace is the prize-winning author of 11 previous books, including Continent, winner of the 1986 Whitbread First Novel Award and the Guardian Fiction Prize, Quarantine, the 1998 Whitbread Novel of the Year and shortlisted for the Booker Prize, Being Dead, which was winner of the 2001 National Book Critics Circle Award, and Harvest, which was shortlisted for the 2013 Man Booker Prize and the winner of the International Dublin Literary Award and the James Tate Black Memorial Prize. And Jim's latest novel is The Melody, which we're going to be talking about today. Jim, welcome to Little Atoms. Thank you, Neil. Happy to be here. Well, the first thing I should say is Harvest, I understand, was supposed to be your last book. Yeah. There were various reasons why I thought I should pack up a writing career. And the biggest reason, I suppose, when I think about it in retrospect, is that I've had a really lucky career. I mean, anyone that gets published one book published is lucky. But to have published 11 books and to have been well-received and to have made a living out of it is just pushing luck too far. And luck is something which I forget who defined it this way, but luck is the thing that runs out. And so I've always felt that I wanted to get out of writing novels before my luck ran out, so that I ended up on a high, a novel that really did well, rather than left on a low with a novel that failed. So that was the main reason. There are all sorts of other reasons. But the trouble is that, you, you know, you make these decisions and you think, God, I'm going to enjoy being retired. Won't it be great not to be sitting alone in front of a word processor all day, which is a kind of unhealthy activity. But what you don't allow for is the fact that fiction, narrative, if you have spent a lifetime writing it, comes up with some fresh ideas which are irresistible and that's what's happened with this new book and so what was it that influenced the melody well there's several influences on it um, but there had to be one big one that gave me the big push which told me that i couldn't retire there was one more book that needed to be written and what happened was i, I was at a literary festival actually with my wife we were in india in chennai in india uh, east coast of india stopping in one of those incredible Indian hotels where, you know, every luxury known to humankind is on tap there, beautiful rooms, uh, a closed unit. You know, the outside world couldn't enter unless it was a guest or unless it had a pass. It was a little 
pretend India w- within the real India, the real India in which there, there's poverty and there's all the usual mixes that you get in every big country. Anyway, there we were in our suite, three-room suite on the 13th floor. Everything was perfect. Everything was brought on silver trays, except for one thing, and that was we couldn't sleep at night. And the reason we couldn't sleep at night was the din that took place as soon as it got dark in the waste ground at the side of the hotel. And it sounded like the worst um, steel band you've ever heard in your life, just the crash of metal. And what that was, when I tiptoed over across to the window at about 2 o'clock in the morning to see what the noise was, what it was was animals knocking over the waste bins of the hotels. And as we looked down at those waste bins, at those animals, we weren't quite sure what mammals we could see, but we were sure that there were, you know, dogs of some kind, but also maybe the mammals included human mammals, young children, small adults, dining at the bins and competing with each other. And the question that came to me there and then, the question that I wanted the book to answer, is what kind of mammal can both be eating from bins and from silver trays in hotel rooms? So that was the the spur of the book. And so bearing that in mind, how would you describe the melody in terms of what it's about? Well, it's only partly about that, because, you know, the great joy of writing fiction, and also maybe the recompense of the lonely life that writing fiction is, is that if you're sensible or if you're lucky, you let the book express itself. So even though I recognise that this, uh, in a rather pious way, was what I wanted my book to talk about, you know, what, what the nature of humankind was, in what way were we bestial, in what way were we human, in what ways does poverty take us closer to the animal, Even though I knew those were the subject matters, of course, once a fiction starts to develop under your eyes, um, it starts to have suggestions of its own. It starts to take over with new themes. I mean, the reason that happens is, you know, it's nothing spooky. It's just that humankind has been a storyteller ever since the invention of fires. You know, uh, I can't imagine human beings back in uh, primitive times sitting around a fire at night with cold backs and warm foreheads without exchanging little tales, telling each other how they spent the day, how they slaughtered that um, saber-toothed tiger, etc., etc. I think we've always been storytellers. And the result is that it's part of our makeup, and it's an inner voice to us. So when we start writing fiction, or at least when I'm writing fiction, there's a little inner voice that comes from those thousands of years of storytelling that bubbles up with me and tells me, yes, write that story, but don't set it in India. Write that story, but also there are other themes that fit in. And you might want this character to do this thing, but I, the spirit of narrative, wanted to do something else. And this is just one of the things that you have to negotiate when you write novels. You bring to the story a set of skills, you hope, but you also have got to cock your ear to what it is that the narrative itself wants to do. And so the melody is set in a town by the sea, yeah. an unnamed yeah. town, and it's yeah. you know in an unnamed country. And, and we can be more specific and say also that it's within certain parameters in an unspecified time as well. Yeah. And while that might seem to work in the way that you've just described the sort of influence of this book, not particularly wanting to set it in India, for instance, where where you you know you got the inspiration. This is also yeah. something that you're you're keen on in a, in, a, in a lot of your books. It's the way you work. Tell me why. Well, I mean, the key is in the India thing because I could have set the book in India, but then if I'd have set the book in India, I'd have been a white writer writing about something that I really wasn't familiar with. 
it would become a colonial book. And uh, anything that I write about poverty in India would have the danger of dismissing a huge subcontinental area as being nothing but poverty. And I would be bound to get it wrong, and it would do damage. I would be holding up a mirror up to a world. that I would be holding a cracked mirror up to a world, because I don't really know enough about India to get it right. Besides, uh, any number of Indian writers are already writing those novels and doing it well. So what I wanted to do was to be able to say whatever I wanted to say without insulting any real place. And if you're going to do that, then you need to invent your own locations. And that's always been my starting point. I think one of the things that I was aware of when I started writing fiction set in an invented third world, which is what happened with my first book, Continent, was I was reminded of the the Joseph Conrad um, book, The Heart of Darkness, and The Heart of Darkness, of course, is a wonderful book, but it's set in Africa without actually being about Africa. But ever since it was written, people will read The Heart of Darkness and equate Africa with darkness, with savagery, with brutality, all of those words which are laid onto Africans in that very influential novel. And even though we can't blame Conrad for it, Whenever you look at the Daily Mail, for example, and with, uh, with an article about something bad that's happening in Africa, I promise you the phrase, the heart of darkness, will come out. So I didn't want to be part of that tradition, the tradition in which fiction besmirched the real world. And so from the very start, I found my voice with Continent. I realized that if I was going to write about third world issues, I needed to set them, or the, you know, the conflict between the, the north of the world and the south of the world, as we now call it, I needed to set those, to talk about those issues in an invented landscape where I was in no danger of besmirching any real nation. And the result was that I found it easy. And when you find a voice that you can, when you find a singing voice in fiction that you can, that you can hit easily every time you start writing, then you use it again and again and again. And that's all I've done in my career. I've used that invented landscape again and again and again. I'm Jeff Dyer, and you're listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. And in this particular book, in in the melody, in terms of the setting, in terms of the town, to what extent do you plan that town out? You know, in terms of, we're not talking about, you know, a sci-fi novel here with extensive world building and a map at the front of the book, but you've, you've obviously planned out the town to a certain extent, does that happen first, or does that does that happen as you go along with the writing of the narrative? Yeah, I mean, I would say, I mean, it's a slight exaggeration here, because, of course, we have to allow for rewriting and editing and such like. But essentially, when the reader encounters that first walk up from the coast up into the town, at that same moment, I'm encountering it as a writer. So I'm making it up as I go along, trying to make it right, trying to to get some integrity in in this town that I am creating at the same time that the reader is discovering it. I mean, you know, you make mistakes, and that's what editing is for. That's what rewriting is for. You follow your instincts, and at the end of following your instincts, you've written a novel that's got some inconsistencies in it. And consistency is what I want, because if you invent somewhere... You need to persuade people that this is a real place and not just an invented place. You want to have to seem like a real place. So to some extent, inconsistencies are just as important in an invented landscape as they are in a piece of journalism. You know, you've got to iron out those inconsistencies. And once you've set out on that project, that the place in which this, the world in which this novel is going to be set is going to be 
made up then you also have fun with that to the extent that this book has yeah. it has a fake epigraph and it goes as far as to have a, a, a set of fake acknowledgements as well yeah 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 i mean that's to do with the fact i mean i'm not i'm not an autobiographical writer i'm a kind of a pure fiction writer i mean i don't when i use the word pure i don't mean it in a self-approving way i just mean that um i look into the worlds of fictions to make more fictions i don't look into my private world to make more fictions which is the you know the more recent um post jane austen way of writing fiction in, in england anyway so uh so the point is so that if i if therefore this is very much a thing of fiction and it's not autobiographical the last thing i want to do is to is to break the sense that it's not autobiographical by thanking real people at the end of the book by um dedicating it to real people at the beginning of the book and by having um an epigraph in the book which is um uh, taken from a real bookshop or a real published novel what i want to do is to celebrate the whole business of fiction by allowing the fiction to seep out of the story into the frontispiece and into the back piece and it's just me being playful really and mischievous and it's kind of fun and the great thing about it is that our, my publishers have had all sorts of letters in from people saying, oh, I, I checked the um, people that, that were acknowledged in this book and they don't exist, and is there a page missing? So it's just a little bit of, of, of schoolboy fun that I'm having, I'm afraid. Well, I was also I was going to mention another one of the characters later on after we've talked about some of the main characters, but in a similar vein, to begin with, the book has a, a narrative voice that intrudes every now and then. And as yeah. you start to read the book, you could almost believe that this was your voice or or it was some you know some sort of like postmodern version of the author intruding into the story. But then actually mm-hmm. what happens is later on in the book the narrator emerges as a major character in himself. Mm. Mm. Well, when we talk about uh, the inspiration of narrative itself, it doesn't mean that we don't bring anything to writing a book. There are technical decisions you need to make before you, you start writing any, any fiction, or you need to try out to see which is the best option. I mean, the obvious ones of those are um, a person. Are you going to write the book in the third person, uh, which is the normal way of, of writing a book? He, she did this, the king did that, the princess did that. Or are you going to write it in the first person, which, of course, narrows your, the point of view of a book? Are you going to write it in the present tense or in the past tense? The past tense is the default tense in fiction. Once upon a time, there was. But the present tense gives kind of a dynamism to it. So these are important decisions that you have to make before you can write any book. You know, you can't have a book without those decisions being made. But for me, there's a third uh, decision to be made, which is much more complicated and I think much more important, and that is who is your narrator? Now, often I've been um, teaching, I used to be a professor of creative writing on and off in the University of Texas in in Texas, in the States. And I'd have um, really well-achieved writers coming with their novels they were hoping to get an MFA for. And I would say, who's your narrator? Because, you know, their narrator would have no voice. And they'd look at me startled. They hadn't thought about who the narrator was. They were just telling the story. They hadn't realized that in every single book of fiction, the narrator is also a character. Now, the conventional narrator you have in a fiction can be godlike. In other words, they are hovering above everything that's going on and they know everything and they can see everything. So there's nothing hidden from them and they can report on it. They can report on it with a mordant voice or with a, a, you know, with a punishing voice of God or they can, um, or they can be uh, disapproving and moralistic. But nevertheless, their voice will be way beyond the actual actions that are going on. 
You can also have a narrator who is one of the players in the book, such as in The Great Gatsby, when you've got the book is narrated by Nick Carraway, and um, he's one of Gatsby's friends, but he's not a player within the plot. But he's in the mix, so to speak. You know, he's drunk from the same bottles as the characters in the book. So that's a different kind of narrator. That's a narrator who's on the ground with the um, other characters. Now, what I wanted with the melody was to have a narrator that was like a buzzard flying across the city. So someone that was familiar with the city, that was almost a citizen, um, that could see into some yards, but not all yards. It couldn't be everywhere. They had moments of darkness and moments of clarity. But as the book progressed, this um, buzzard would kind of turn into a sparrow, someone that actually lived in your yard, someone that was a player, someone that was a fellow citizen. In other words, the narration would be slightly above the town when it started, and it would get closer to, uh, to ground level as the book proceeded. And that's kind of what happened, because the narrator starts off, as, as you said, as, as seeming like an outsider voice, but he's gradually identified to be an insider and a friend of the main character. Listed to Little Atoms, I'm Neil Denny, and today I'm talking to Jim Crace about his latest novel, The Melody. And Jim, I want to talk about some of the some of the central characters in the book, and we'll start with the I guess the main focus of the book, which is Alfred Boosie or um, Mr. Al, as as he's known. Tell us something about who he is. Yeah, well, I th- the prompting for this is one of the odd promptings for this is I've always, thanks to my wife, been so not always since we've been married forty odd years been a great fan of the European tradition of chanson, 
because my wife's a linguist and she was a French teacher um, when we got married. And she introduced me to the great European singers, the great continental singers. And what I liked about those singers in the 20s and 30s was that they were unembarrassed about their seriousness. They talked about love and they talked about morality and politics and death and all of those subjects without flinching or, or blushing. Whereas over in the UK at that same time, we were laughing along with Noel Coward and, you know, making serious points through irony and through wit. But I like that European tradition. And I like the discipline of good songwriting um, in which the lyrics lead the music. And so it's always been um, uh, an interest of mine to get into the, into the heart and soul of a European songwriter for whom lyrics matter. And that became a more urgent subject matter for me to be interested in after Brexit. I mean, it seems a bit weird, but when you think about all of the connections we're going to lose when we leave Europe, the connection with the culture of Europe is, is important. And central to the culture of Europe, in my view, is this great tradition of songwriting. Fado in Portugal, a chanson tradition in, uh, in France, uh, Rembetica in Greece. I mean, all the way around the Mediterranean, there are these traditions of serious songwriting. So um, it just bubbled through. That interest just bubbled through. And I found myself writing about a man, a creative man, who was a singer-songwriter on the wane, who had high regard for music, an even higher regard for lyrics, who represents as well some connection we're going to lose as we withdraw from the EU. Sorry to make a political point. <laughs> well, there'll be more of that as we go along, I'm sure. Right. Um, <clears throat> another major presence, I, I, I hesitate to say character, another major presence in the book then is uh, Alfred's wife, Alicia, who has relatively recently passed away. Tell us something about her. Yes. Well, I mean, is it my age? I don't know. I've been happily married for 40-odd years, and so I've not never experienced widowhood, or widowerhood, I suppose I'd say, for a man. Um, and, uh, and, and, of course, I dread the very prospect of it. I, what I like to do with all of my books is to take communities at a point of transition. So the end of the Stone Age in one book and the beginning of the, uh, of the Bronze Age, you know, in other words, the end of industrialization. Uh, in harvest, the end of uh, an agricultural tradition um, being exchanged for urban drift. You know, so all of these points of transition are important to me. But equally, when I've got characters, I like to see my characters under some kind of stress. And so obviously widowhood is uh, a clear example of, of a stress in somebody's life. And the reason I do that is not to be cruel. It's just that if you look at people when they're going through a hard time it's at those moments that you start to see the strengths and weaknesses of people and the determination of people and the gutlessness of people it brings out character in people to put them under a certain amount of stress now i don't want that to happen in real life but that's what fiction excels at fiction doesn't want novels which um tell about longevity and and uh, long marriages and they doesn't want a novel that is just called peace not war and peace you don't want to read a novel in which everyone is fit and happy and contented and rich what fiction likes is war and pestilence and unhappiness and divorce and early death and you know i'm not saying that in a cynical way i'm just saying that the reason for us having those dark shadows in fiction in, in, in the finest fiction is because fiction has a purpose and at its higher level fiction prepares us and equips us to deal with the hardships that life is bound to deliver to us. Now, my first experiences of death have been the experiences, I'm lucky to say, but my, and it's, it's not a rare occurrence, 
a lot of people's first experiences of death are the ones that they've encountered in the fiction that they've read. You know, from the age of 9, 10, 11, 12, you read about people who die in Dickens, for example, and such like. So that's why Mr. Al in this book is widowed. It enabled me to put him under a kind of stress so that we can judge his value. And I hope that this is an optimistic book, so that at the end of the book we do value Mr. Uh, Mr. Al and like him, uh, despite his widowhood, or even because of his widowhood. I'm Olivia Lang, and you're listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. One of the pressures you put him under then, um, as well as the loss of his wife, in his life is also uh, his sister-in-law, Katerina, who a long time ago he had a, a sort of quite ambiguous relationship with. Relationship is, again, probably too strong a word. A thing that has yeah. over them all the time. And I've, I found the not only the descriptions of, of sort of his his loneliness in missing his wife, but this sort of like guilty longing for his sister-in-law as well, I found, it, I found it incredibly powerful. I'm pleased to hear that. I'm worried about that character because... What happened between those two was they had a flirtation, you know, when, when they were both young. And it was a physical flirtation. And uh, it was only like a one-night stand. Or, you know, I mean, it was this book, which is sort of set in the late 20s, the 30s, the, one, the phrase one-night stand didn't exist. And probably the concept isn't fitting for that period. But it was a, a physical flirtation in his dressing room after concert that didn't, um, didn't outlive the evening, hardly. But what I was fearful of when I was writing about Tarina was that she would be disliked by women readers because, to some extent, I want you to like her via a hard route. I invite the reader to think that she's just someone who is in love with herself because she's a woman that's very, very aware of her own um, appearance, even though she's now in her 60s, is obsessed with clothes, is never able to walk down a street without um, being aware of the male gaze. And as I talk, I, I recognise that all of those issues uh, are quagmire issues, they're dangerous issues, you know, in a post-feminist world. But I wanted to take that risk and get it right, because what I wanted to happen was for my readers to recognise that despite all of these things, despite all of these shallownesses, that things you might consider to be shallownesses anyway, despite all those things, here was a grand and admirable woman um, with considerable kindness and considerable moral strength. Um, and that, I hope, is um, her purpose in the book, that she, she's such an important uh, crutch for uh, Boosie. She turns up on the night that he's beaten up to mend his wounds, to be a support to him. She's there at the end to help scatter uh, her sister's and, and Boosie's um, wife's um, ashes. So um, she was a character I hope that my readers will approve of after having perhaps for a few chapters disapproved of. I mean, you mentioned there that he, he's beaten up and the, the, at the beginning of the book, the, the action is sort of set in motion by this incident that happens in his kitchen, a, a possibly an animal, possibly a wild child, possibly even, I'd go as far as to say, something not real, like even as a, just a metaphor for the encroaching wild or the wild that the human beings are encroaching on from the outside. Um, this thing that you describe as the Bosque, which I'd, I'd also like to mention as well. But first of all, this idea of the, you know, of this, of this wild child. Tell me something about that image. Well, you're right. It starts off as a metaphor first. Um, clearly, the book is looking for a metaphor to carry 
its meaning with it. I mean, I'm nothing if not a didactic writer. And, uh, but then, in order for me to make metaphors work, they have to sort of fit in to a real world so that you can confuse them for... You can confuse the bizarre for something which is not strange at all. So in one reading of that boy, what's uncommon about that? You know, there are, there's children raiding bins for food throughout the world. There are young people in my, the, the city closest to me, which is Birmingham, sleeping out on the street. There is everywhere in the world nowadays, there are young people who are uh, scavenging for food. And so that's not much of a stretch. You know, that's a, a piece of political realism. But the way that I work it out is that if I'm going to argue about poverty and homelessness as a piece of political realism and want to make changes, the best way to do that is to get people out to vote and to go out on demonstrations and to give money to charities and to write leaflets and placards. So what is it that fiction can do other than those things which have got nothing to do with fiction? They've got to do with acting politically. Well, what fiction can do is it can arm the argument with a powerful metaphor. And so the metaphor is the important thing. I mean, you pointed it out, and that, I'm glad you pointed it out, because that's the, the main thing for me, that the boy stands for this substrate of prejudice and fear that we have about those creatures which are the same genus as us, the same, the same mammal as us, but nevertheless, because we are lucky and they are not, fill us with a kind of dread and a kind of fear. And I, I just want to talk about, just to finish off, a couple more of the are the points where I guess the politics comes out in that there's there's feelings stirred up in the community after this attack and you know the mendicants as they're described in the book start to sort of suffer there's a I guess a tabloid journalist that goes by the name of Subrake who basically describes them. He he interviews Boozy and then goes on to describe these people as Neanderthals. And there's like a you know a sort of prejudice that wells up. But on the other side as well, there is this sort of encroaching um, gentrification of the town and encroachment both on the wild and on the areas where the poor people are living. Boozy's nephew is behind this uh, rather ironically named The Grove, which is like, you know, going to destroy large parts of, of the natural natural area. And as I said, also the, uh, the places where, you know, the mendicants are living. Well... Progress comes at a cost, doesn't it? And uh, it's clear whose side that I'm on. I mean, I'm, I'm on the side of um, the old ways of humankind in this book. But that's kind of weird, isn't it? Because I'm a progressive as well. You know, I want cities to progress. I want there to be more housing. Um, I, and, and so it's a double-edged sword. You know, you can stand shoulder and shoulder with uh, one group of, uh, and say, I want housing the next generation can't find any housing in England, for example. We want more houses. But you're standing shoulder to shoulder with um, property developers that have got no such principle, and their only, um, their only impulse is the profits that they're going to make. So that's the kind of mix that I was interested in, that change comes at a price and that change has some strange allies. The problem with the changes that we are bound to make, to make uh, in, in our own futures, to make um, conditions better for humankind is the impact it has on the natural world. And this has always been an issue in all of my novels, I think. I can't think of an exception. There's always a clash in my novels between the built environment and the natural world. And I suppose that that clash is always in my books because I don't know the answer. Because even though as someone that's interested in natural history, because that's my sort of amateur subject, nevertheless, I'm a political person that wants the world to technologically advance. 
And that is a clash which um, has always interested me and a clash for which I've not yet found the truth. And this book, I, to some extent, is trying to find that truth. I think that's a, that's a perfect point for us to finish. So I've been talking to Jim Crace. We've been talking about his latest novel, The Melody, which is out now from Picador. Jim, thank you so much for sharing it with me. Thank you, Neil. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89Up, and the podcast is hosted by Acast. Find us on iTunes, and if you like the show, please do leave us a review. You can find old interviews, new journalism and more on our website, littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Mm. 